Welcome to the Galen Trombley Show. Be sure to subscribe, review, and share the episode. You can follow me on social media at Galen Trombley. I hope you enjoy the show. Greetings. Please hold for a very important message. Light speed sequence initiated. How may I help you? Bonjour. Security breach. The truth shall set you free. <laughs> awesome. It's a miracle. Mission complete. Thank you. Have a nice day. Welcome, everybody. This is episode, uh, was it 209? For some reason, I never look before I start talking, but episode 209, we have a returning guest. Um, and he, you came on two years ago before the election. I like having you on before the election. The reason why is you're a professor of political science at Plattsburgh State, um, political scientist, all of the above. And I enjoyed you last time. You had a lot of knowledge. And I think out of anybody that's been on this, your knowledge of history, dates, facts, figures, dating back at this point, almost probably 200 years was like spot on. You, you, you were very, you were, you had my mind spinning with all the knowledge you had last time, but it, uh, Dr. Harvey Shantz, um, back again, ready for the big election. I said, yes. this is like your Super Bowl, but I don't know. Do you feel like it's your Super Bowl? I'm I'm starting to feel it. Um, <laughs> as the race for governor tightened, then I started to get nervous, and um, so I, I I did feel it in that way. So when when you say you get nervous for this kind of stuff, are you nervous in the sense of like who you who you would like to win, or are you just nervous by like the actual science of the politics? Because last time we talked, you you very much touched on like the political science of of elections. That's right. I'm nervous. I get nervous because I I want to know the outcome. People think I'm supposed to know the outcome <laughs> rather than a root. I'm much more interested in being correct than I am in one party winning or the other. So especially once I would go on record with saying what is going to happen, then I'm directly interested in being correct rather than so where are you on the record of saying what the results are? Well, is this like public or is this just you like kind of like water cooler talk amongst the professors? Well, it becomes more and more public in interview forums as interviews okay. are. Um, so when you go for interviews, people will um, talk with you. Then at some point they'll um, near the end, they might um, throw in. So what's going to happen or something? like that. And then you have to couch. There are certain ways that you couch the answers. You don't really, when you're following a campaign um, and it's a long story, the media has a vested interest in stretching out the the narrative. So you never say this is over. When someone is on the short end of the stick, you say they have an uphill battle to um, win. But um, when you look at the American party system, there's two major parties, the Democrats and the Republicans. And so there's always the opportunity for the out party to win the election. Because even though one party has a stronger majority, let's say the Democrats in New York State, if voters become dissatisfied with the party in power, 
The only alternative is to go to the Republican Party. So the Republican Party has an opportunity to win if the Democratic Party doesn't do the job or if people think it's time for a change. After a party has been in power for a while, the likelihood of a party change or turnover increases. And so if a party in power doesn't meet the expectations of voters, then the second party always has the opportunity to win. So when I look at states around the United States, I see some very strong Democratic states that have Republican governors. For example, Vermont, right outside our um, windows here, or Massachusetts or Maryland. Those are three of the most Democratic states in the country, yet all three have Democratic um, legislatures, but um, Republican um, governors. When you say that a state is strong for one party or the other, it's more difficult to turn over control of a state legislative chamber than it is the governorship, because the governorship is only one office. And so as the race has been getting tighter, then I become more nervous, but everyone's becoming more nervous. Uncertainty is what people look for in a close election. Once there's uncertainty, then each side works harder in order to win the election. Why, why do you think that, let's just take Vermont because we can see him from where we're standing or sitting. Why do you think Vermont has a Republican governor, but then historically is very democratic or very, uh, you know, yeah, very democratic. And then like you said, Maryland and um, what was the last Massachusetts, Massachusetts. So why, why do you think, cause I've always wondered that. Cause back in the day, like, you know, uh, governor Pataki, uh, you know, mayor Giuliani, they were Republican. And, and again, New York's primarily a very democratic state. Why do you think that they would have won in certain areas that were, you know, their party wasn't the majority of the voters, but somehow they got in. I think because governors, I think there's um, two reasons. One, tying into what I had just said, I think that if there's dissatisfaction of the governors of one party, the only alternative is to vote for the second party. It's only one position. So if voters in the state are unhappy about the performance of the party in power, could be tax rates or it could be the failure to cope with a natural disaster or something that's executive in nature, the only place to go is to the other party in power. And so what you find is that there's more volatility in governorships than there would be in control of state legislative chambers in um, the states that are um, dominated by one um, party. How, what, what's the percentage of people that vote party lines across the board? Most people vote um, party lines, um, 90% plus of um, voters. Split ticket voters are voters that vote 
for one party for president and another party for the U.S. House of Representatives. And so in the 1970s and 80s, there was an increase in ticket splitting. And there, were book in, there was a book in 1972 called The Ticket Splitters, A New Force in American Politics. But since the 1990s, the percentage of voters that ticket split has gone way down to maybe 10% of the um, voters. When we analyze voters, the stronger a person's party identification that they feel, the less likely they will be to split their ticket. So a straight ticket voter is someone who votes for a president of one party and a member of the House of the same um, party. Of course, you could split ticket in other ways, too, but this is um, the House and president is how they um, measure it. Also, you can measure it in terms of the outcome of elections. So you can say how many states voted on the same day for a U.S. senator of one party and a president of another party. And it, it's very minuscule these days in terms of split outcomes as well. Yeah, like I, I mean, anytime I've gone and voted, I've always, I tend to, on, I think we talked about this last time, on the local level, half the time I don't even know who's running under what party. And a lot of it, like, you know, you might know personally the person, I mean, again, we're talking, you know, Clinton County and local towns. I might know directly the person running and for the longest time i i you know i don't know their political affiliation um and now when i get on more of the national scale you typically i find i'm more in tune to what the if they're republican or democrat and i typically find that i end up voting more along my party lines on the national scale where the local scale it's honestly probably 50 50 and I go by the person I go by what they're doing and I can see more of what they're doing day to day because it's in our paper it's in our on our news you know I go to events and I see these people um you know I'm not going around seeing the president I'm not going around seeing the senators I'm not going around you know typically seeing people in Washington but is that common for people or do you find that like there's more of like you said kind of the the straw voters or the the swing voters like on the local scale more than the national scale well, you can have split levels of party identification within uh, the same person. So one person may choose to be a Republican at the national level, but vote for the local Democratic Party. You often found that in times of party change. So as one region of the country switches from Democrat to Republican or vice versa, they would switch their party voting before they switch their congressional voting and other down-ballot races. And only after a while, with voter replacements, do um, the party voting um, line up again. But what you describe sounds like what they used to call friends and neighbors voting, that if someone is running in a very local environment, they have the... Um, the scrutiny of the local um, voters. I think that would have been more typical years ago. Now things are so partisan that it's very difficult to get people to vote for candidates of the opposition party. However, you can point to races here and there where a mayor will get elected from an area that seemed to focus 
or favor the other um, party. Of course, New York City had the Giuliani era and the Michael Bloomberg era of de- of Democratic voters supporting Republicans or independent um, mayors. So it, it happens in that way um, as well. You had uh, Dan Stewart on many uh, mm-hmm. a while back, yep. and he was a Republican mayor in the city of Plattsburgh, but he got elected after um, Clyde Rabideau was completing, I believe, five terms of office as a Democrat. So that would be a case of a time for a change and switching over to the other political party. And I think Dan had switched political parties in his, I think at one point he was a Democrat and I think switched to a Republican. Again, this was probably a year and a half, two years ago now, but I believe that he said at one point he was, um, he wasn't a career Republican or a career Democrat. Like I think he had gone back and forth and switched affiliations. And I feel like he might've even switched it purely for the race because there was a Democrat running that he needed to have obviously another, another, uh, he had to be on the ballot on, you know, under a different party. Historically, that has been the case in, um, Plattsburgh mayoral elections. Um, if you look back, I, I may be incorrect in this, but I think Clyde Rabideau also had switched parties to get ready <laughs> to run for mayor. Um, when, uh, Joe Bornstein was getting him interested in, uh, running. But do, do you think that the, I mean, it's it's now taking center stage on the political scene, but how part uh, or how partisan our country is right now, or bipartisan, right? Bipartisan our country is. Um, do you think that that, like, what are you feeling? Have we ever been this divided as a country? Do you feel? I I feel in my lifetime, which is considerable now, the country has not been so um, divided, and that's um, I wouldn't call it bipartisan, but it, w- it would be called partisan polarization. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is people's party identification these days are lining up pretty much with their ideological identification. So in the 1950s and um, 60s, there were liberal elements in the Republican Party, and there were conservative elements in the Democratic Party. But the Democratic Party has become more uniformly liberal, and the Republican Party has become more uniformly conservative. And so members of each party are more alike, and there's more differences between the parties. This has to do with how national politics played out. And so the most conservative Democrats were from the South, and the South switched to Republican identification. And the most liberal Republicans were from the Northeast, and the Northeast switched to Democratic identification. And so, and as... And Harvey, can I stop you there? Is that, the switch, was that purely like the way they, they termed the, the group of people, or did the ideologies completely switch? The ideologies um, switched. Um, they In political science terms, this is one of my uh, favorite um, terms, it's called party realignment. And so when you look historically, the Democrats were historically the most, the, the South was historically the most democratic region of the country. It used to be called the solid democratic South. 
the 11 states of the South, Alabama, Arkansas, Florida, Georgia, Louisiana, Mississippi, North Carolina, South Carolina, Tennessee, Texas, and Virginia. Those 11 states uniformly supported Democrats for president. And the New England states, Connecticut, Maine, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Rhode Island, Vermont, were uniformly for the um, Republicans. But at the 1948 Democratic Convention, Hubert Humphrey asked the Democrats to support more racial integration of um, facilities. And the Southern Democrats, called Dixiecrats, walked out, and they ran their own candidate for president. That started a process whereby the Democrats in the South converted to become the Republicans in the South. And so by the 1970s, we had the Southern strategy of the Republican Party to develop a conservative party based in the southern part of the United States. And reflecting the southern influence in the Republican Party, the Democratic Party started to pick up strength in the Northeast. And so some people call this regional realignment, or they give other names, but it's party realignment. And that's what happened. When states change, a lot of their change is because of the imprint of national politics. And then the national politics filter down to lower offices, members of Senate and Congress. It, it always, because when you hear it like back in, say, the 1800s, at one point wasn't the the Democrats called Republicans or Republicans were called Democrats. I forgot the actual terms that they had back then for political parties, but wasn't it a total switch on what we have today? Because, I mean, I've always grown up, we have Republicans, we have Democrats. Um, but wasn't it some, back in the 1800s, it was almost flip-flopped? Or there, like the People's Republic, or People's Republic, like Republic Democratic Republics or something? Yeah, there's different names that are used for the um, parties. So... This goes back to what they would call the first party system. The first party system was the development of the first two political parties. The first party were, were the Jeffersonians, and Jefferson called his party the Republicans, and his opponents called him the Democrats. So in history books, they're called the Democratic-Republicans, or the Jeffersonians. So the Jeffersonians were the Democratic-Republicans, but in the day they were called by many as Republicans. They were Jeffersonian Republicans. So they fought the Federalists. The Federalists were the second party in the two-party system, the Federalists petered out, and the Republican Party of Jefferson, the Democratic-Republican Party, that became the Democratic Party of Jackson. So, so Andrew Jackson was a leader in the Democratic-Republican Party, but his faction 
became the Democratic Party. Jackson was elected in 1828, re-elected in 1832, and that's the framework for the modern Democratic Party. So it's Jefferson's party, as you correctly said, known as Republicans, but historically DR, Democratic Republicans, and that became the Democratic Party. The Whigs took the place of the Federalists, and then in the 1850s, the modern Republican Party grew, and Lincoln is the first Republican president when he was elected in 1860. And, and Abraham Lincoln back then would be similar in ideology to the current Republican Party. Obviously, there's some nuances there, but in that's, that party is still the same Republican Party? No. There's, so that party shifted policy views as well. So if you look at the Republican Party at the time of the 1860s, the Republican Party was the party of industrialization. The Republican Party was the party of internal development, railroads and canals, and the Republican Party was the anti-slavery party. The Democratic Party became the party of the South and the party of states' rights and represented that element. So after the Civil War, the further north you went in the United States, the more Republican you became, and the further south was more Democratic. Today it's the reverse. The further north is more Democratic on the eastern side of the country, and the further south is more Republican. That shifted since the 1960s. As the racial issue became a bigger division in society, the Republican Party switched from the party of Lincoln to the party of going slower on social change in many respects, but including racial issues. And the Democratic Party, which was the party of the South during the Civil War, was the party in 1964 that promoted the Civil Rights Act of 64. So in the Senate of 1964, Barry Goldwater, who was the candidate of the Republican Party, voted against the Civil Rights Act. And he lost the presidential election, while the Democratic president, Lyndon Johnson, was the biggest advocate for the Civil Rights Act. And that switched to parties. So there was an actual tipping point in that moment that you feel like that, at least in a short period of time, was the change? Were the catalyst for the change? They use different terms for it. Realignment is a, is a permanent change in the party coalitions. Now, if it is telescoped into one or two elections, they call it a critical election. But if it takes over a number of elections or decades, they call that a secular realignment or slow realignment. So you could see it perhaps in stages. So the Dem- the Democrats were the majority party with Johnson, but things began to change. And by the 1968 election, Republicans were winning the presidency. But the Republicans never won the Senate until 1980, and they didn't win the House until 1994. 
So the changes that began with Goldwater in 64 culminated in 1994 with Gingrich. I, not everyone would agree with that. They would um, make other um, nuanced arguments, but that's really um, how it would be. When the Republicans lost the House in the Eisenhower midterm of 1954, they did not get a majority in the House for four oh years, 40 years, until the Gingrich election of 1994. And in 94, that was the first time the Republicans got more House seats than the Democrats in the South. So if you had to pick, what, what would, just because we've mentioned him a few times, what would Lincoln be, you think, would be class or what party he would be, belong to today? That's a, a, a tough one. You, you'd look at different dimensions. Mm -hmm. So he, on issues of civil rights and national... Um, so on issues of civil rights, he would be in the Democratic Party. But if he was true to the underlying feeling of the Republican platform, he, he so I guess he would be a Democrat... In that, uh, on civil rights, he would be with the Democratic Party, and on the power of the central government vis-a-vis -vis the state governments, he would be with the Democratic Party as well. So I guess f I, he he would be a Democratic Party, but I wouldn't know how he would see himself. Yeah, I I always question that because the way that, like you just said, the, the political parties how they've changed over time, how ideologies have changed, how regionalities changed, realignment. It's um, again, we've known, I mean, the Democratic and Republican Party that we know of today, you think it's like the mid-1960s was really where that solidified the, the, the two ideologies of what we currently have? It was, um, it was, it was started in earnest in the Roosevelt years of the 1930s. So the Great Depression happened in 1929, and at that time, the normal majority party in the country were the Republicans. The Republicans won three presidential elections in the 1920s. That was considered normal. But after the stock market crash of 1929, the Democrats became the majority party in presidential elections, and they won five in a row from 1932 through 1948. And so that put economic concerns at the center of the party system. It was said that Republicans were for upper-income people and business, and Democrats were for lower-income people. That was how it stood until the 1960s, when also a civil rights layer was added to the parties, and the Democrats became the party of civil rights and the Republicans became the party of traditional values. So today, what defines the two parties are views on economic issues as well as views on civil rights and liberties issues. So it was added, but the core economic beliefs between what the role of government should be in sustaining individuals vis-a-vis -vis the economic system that goes back to the New Deal years of the 1930s and 40s. What? How? So, I've always looked at myself like, 
if you look at the national scale, I've always found that there's not a president that I can ever vote for or have voted for in my life that I'm like right down the line on one side or the other and say that person hits all the boxes. It's just at this point, you know, it's uh, the further away you get from here, that's what I was saying, like some of the local people that I would vote for, I'm like, they, we align majority of the issues on both sides. Why do you think it's so hard once you get to the national level that there's such polarization on like like economics versus social or liberal more issues? Um, why do you find there's such a divide there? There's not really a, a president that can, that can come in and say like, I'm, I'm truly a moderate. I'm truly whatever you want to classify it as um, bits and pieces of both. But everything is like... I mean, there, there's stuff I'll look at, like one presidential candidate. I'm like, absolutely agree with that. And then some other thing they, they uh, you know, stand for or, or, or side with. And I'm like, I don't agree with that. But again, it's you have two choices and it's kind of like you pick one or the other, um, knowing that they're not going to check all the boxes. So what's the reason that it's such a – there's such a divide, I guess, in, you know, Republicans always, ha- you know, are pretty much cut from one – you know, one cloth and the Democrats are always cut from another. And really the ideologies are the same. Every president, it's just a, kind of a, feel like a different person's just sitting there saying it out of a different voice. But most of the time they're, most of the problems are about the same each year, at least have been over the last handful of elections. The theory of how you win a presidential elections has shifted since the 1960s. It used to be thought that you have to move to the center in order to win a presidential election. And so in 1964, when Johnson beat Goldwater, people said Johnson was more in the middle and Barry Goldwater was too conservative. And in 1972, when Republican Nixon beat George McGovern, the Democrat, people said McGovern was too far to the left and Nixon captured the middle. But beginning with the victory of Reagan in 1980, people started to think that you can win a presidential election if you take an ideologically strong stand. And so since 1980, there's been an awareness that a, an ideological candidate can win a presidential election. But the reason why ideologues are nominated for president is because of the way the nomination process works. When you look at the presidential primaries and the state presidential caucuses, they attract people who are at the ideological extremes of the party. And so in a caucus that's Republican, the people who participate are going to be more conservative than the average Republican voter. And in a Democratic caucus, the people who participate are going to be more liberal than the average Democratic voter. And so in order to appeal to the party base, which is necessary to win the nomination, you have to take a ideolog- an ideological stand. Now, in 2020, what happened was the Democrats saw that they were headed down a path of nominating someone who was very far to the left. And what they did right before the South Carolina primary 
was shift direction and say, we're going to consolidate support and put our chips behind moderate Joe Biden. And so what happened in South Carolina in the um, primary in 2020 is that the Democratic Party decided that they didn't want to go for, too far left, and so they rallied support to Joe Biden. Biden said that he would be in the middle, that he would be pragmatic, but as president, he realizes that he owes his election to the party and to the party activists. So he's kept a very close—he's um, paid very close attention to make sure that he reciprocates the support that he received from progressive Democrats and other Democrats. And so his party affiliation has pulled him to the left as president. Um, do you think Biden's running again in 2022? No, four, 2024? Only he knows. But what he says is that once you announce for president, you have to then file papers with the Federal Election Commission and record your income and expenditures in terms of politics. So typically when people file for president, they do it in the spring of the, um, the odd-numbered year before the presidential election. So you would expect people in 2023, springtime, to announce whether he or they are going to run again. So Biden is really saying he is running, but he doesn't want to make it official. However, it's not official, and he's going to see what the outcome is of the midterm elections, and he's going to see what the party members of the Democrats are thinking. There's no such thing as a party boss, but there are influential Democrats who can um, perhaps influence him one way or the other. Who was the last president that chose not to run but that could run? Let's see. The most famous that I remember off the top of my head was 1968, Lyndon Johnson. Now, Lyndon Johnson became president, of course, when John Kennedy was assassinated. But under the 25th Amendment, he could have run for another full term because he served less than two years of, of um, Kennedy's term. But at the very end of March 1968, he said that he will not seek, nor will I, he said, accept the nomination of my party for another term as president. So I would say he's probably the last um, one that did not um, run for another um, office. If you count them off, for a long while, presidents were leaving under unhappy conditions, and people started to call that the revolving door presidency. And so after Johnson came Nixon, and Nixon resigned because he was going to be removed from office from the um, Senate in impeachment. And then 
Gerald Ford lost to Jimmy Carter, and then Jimmy Carter lost to Ronald Reagan. And so Reagan became the first two-term president since Eisenhower, and he restored stability to the White House. But then the senior Bush lost in, um, to Bill Clinton in 1992 after one term. But since then, presidents up until Trump were getting um, reelected. So Obama served two terms. So Clinton served two terms, and then George W. Bush served two terms, and then Obama served two terms. So the last one to go voluntarily would be LBJ in 1968. Um, and I'm assuming at some point in the past it's happened too. Presidents just kind of walked out, or were most of them up for two? I mean, obviously, like, I always go back to, like, George Washington, who didn't even want to be president and ended up doing two terms. But he started, once he did the two terms, kind of said, like, this is it, and that set the precedent for you know, two four-year terms? Well, once you say that, that's correct. Before Lyndon Johnson, you would have to go back to Harry Truman when he didn't run in 1952. So Harry Truman succeeded FDR and served most of his FDR's fourth term, and then he was elected on his own. But there was no term limitation on the president then. But Truman decided not to run in 52 because... There were a number of issues like the Korean War that were making him unpopular in the um, country. So, yes, the two-term tradition is now the two-term constitutional amendment. So FDR, so FDR is the person who is the only president to be elected more than two times. But he wasn't the first president to be desirous of more than two terms. So Washington left after two terms, but um, Theodore Roosevelt had the most interesting idea about the third term of office. Theodore Roosevelt was vice president when he became the president, when William McKinley was assassinated. And then he was reelected in 1904. But when it came out to 1908, he said he's had enough of the presidency and William Howard Taft became the Republican president in the election of 1908. But in 1912, Theodore Roosevelt decided he wanted another term of office. And people said, but you turned down a third term already. Why do you want it now? And he made a very compelling comparison. He compared it to a third cup of coffee. He said, when I turned down the third term, it was like turning down a third cup of coffee. It wasn't for all time. It was only for then. <laughs> but now I want that third term. So he challenged the Republican president, Taft, and Howard Taft ended up winning the Republican nomination for president. So Theodore Roosevelt ran as a third-party candidate on the progressive bull moose ticket. And... In that election of 1912, he came in second. That's the only time that a third party came in second in a presidential election. But the Republican split worked to the advantage of Democrat Woodrow Wilson. And Woodrow Wilson, the Democrat, was able to win in 1912 in large part 
because of the split in the Republican Party between Theodore Roosevelt and uh, Howard Taft. So, William Howard Taft. Have you? Yeah. So I have I have kind of the timeline up here, so I can follow all. I oh, mean, you I, have I, notes. Okay. I, well, okay, like we said, yeah. I did research. My research is Google right now, but the uh, so. Roosevelt, Taft, Wilson, I think, mean, like you said, anytime yeah. you have a third party, it pulls from one of the two. And typically, if there's a close, typically, yeah, like a Republican might go into an independent and then they both run and then they pull votes away from that party where the Democrats aren't being touched or vice versa. So this one, Roosevelt, Taft, and, and Wilson in 1912, 1913, was that, you think, the most like potential chaoticness because of such a strong third party that happened to be a sitting or a, a two term president at the time? That well, you can remember, or I say you can remember. But. Well, Taft was a one. Taft um, was a one-term president. He was elected. Um, let's see, um, in nineteen. Okay, so so what year was Taft um, elected? Nineteen oh eight. Oh eight. So he was one term, and then in nineteen twelve, Theodore Roosevelt came back, and then Wilson won two terms. But I would direct your attention, since you have a, a chart there, to nineteen forty-eight. Okay. See, in 1948, Truman won as the Democrat, but there were two splinter parties coming off the Democratic Party vote. The Southern Democrats with Strom Thurmond got 2.4% of the vote, and the Progressive Party with Henry Wallace got 2.4% of the vote, 2.39 and 2.38, technically. So there was a case where Truman won the election even though the Democrats split on their progressive side and their southern side. So so the Democrats clearly had more adherence at, at that point. So with so FDR, so at the time FDR ran, so he was he was sitting president for was it twelve or thirteen years? Exactly. He really twelve years in a month Back, because um, probably when he was inaugurated for his first term, it could have been as late as March. I don't think it was January already. Um, but so he died in April of forty-five. So he had twelve years and a month or two. So he died after his fourth election. Yes. Gotcha. So Harry Truman finished out that term and was elected one more term. That's right, in 1948. Then in 52, because of Korea and corruption, he decided not to run. And the Republicans ran Eisenhower. And Eisenhower, because it was a democratic era, the New Deal, Eisenhower ran as a personality as someone who had waged war and now was going to wage peace. Eisenhower appealed in a bipartisan way, and he ran against Adlai Stevenson. And what's interesting there is that Stevenson came back. So for the two elections of the 1950s, 1952 and 1956, Stevenson challenged Eisenhower both times. And Eisenhower won. Once Eisenhower was off the ballot, though, the Democrats returned to power with John Kennedy in 1960. So when, um, so when FDR ran, that, that wasn't, um, 
the the uh, the constitutional amendment stating that you can only run for two terms was not enacted. And when did that come into play officially? That came into play after FDR. So it was a reaction to FDR. And the first person who was president who was limited by it would have been Eisenhower. So, so when F- FDR runs up to that point in time, and you said like Teddy Roosevelt went for a third term, was he the only, like, did it just happen by coincidence that people ran only two terms and got eight and then they ran for a third and lost? Or was that kind of the rule of thumb? Kind of not, not a rule, but I guess a unwritten rule that, Hey, after two terms, you really should kind of bow out. Um, or did, you know, going beyond or going prior to the 1930s, did any of these people try to run for a third term and just lose? And it just happened like, hey, two, three, four of them actually lost that way. No one was nominated for a third term. Did they run, though? They, they put out feelers. They, they, they would put out a feeler. But when you're in office, like you could be a department chairman even, and there's an unofficial idea that you're going to serve two terms, but it's hard to step down. And presidents feel that as well. And so presidents put out feelers. What are you thinking of me running again? But it was only Theodore Roosevelt that actually tried it. So the two-term tradition was pretty strong. Some people um, say Jefferson added to um, Washington's two-term tradition as well. And so it was pretty strong, but Theodore Roosevelt was the only one who tried to break it. With FDR, as FDR, so in 1932, FDR beat Hoover, and it was an upset. But in 1936, FDR won by a large margin over Alf Landon, and he was riding high. By 1940, things were looking bad in Europe. And FDR said, you really need me. You can't really change horses at midstream. Now's not the time to change presidents. And he won a third term. Then World War II was still going on. He won a fourth term in 1944. And so he won the, the presidential election right before World War Two and the one during World War Two. It was his um, like during that time, and again, whether that's he was the right person or whether circumstance allowed him to go two more. Because like, what he just kind of, I guess his his uh, one of his campaign runs or whatever or, or uh, uh, justifications was he. I mean, I'm assuming like during World War Two, did he have quite a high approval rating? They didn't have approval ratings back then. That started with Truman. There may have been a few before the um, war, but Roosevelt put together what they call the New Deal Coalition. The New Deal Coalition took the traditional Southern base of the Democratic Party and the strength the Democrats were feeling in the northeastern part of the country and he really grew the northeastern base of the Democratic Party. He attracted Jewish voters. He attracted black African-American voters. He attracted lower-income voters. 
to the Democratic Party. So he was a very powerful instrument. And under his presidency, the size of government increased greatly. And he was very powerful president because he was very powerful in the Democratic Party and they were the dominant party. And so not knowing how things were going then, I could only surmise that it was Roosevelt's personality and influence in the party that gave him um, the ability to force himself on them for a third term. What was the, what was the largest upset, you think, in, in the history of the presidency? In, in the history of presidential elections? I always think of Truman holding up the Dewey paper as being like an iconic photo, but is that... Was that truly the biggest upset? I guess you're right. I guess you're right. In 1948, when Truman was running for his first election on his own, Thomas E. Dewey was the governor of New York State. And the polls had Dewey in the um, lead. But then on election day, Truman won the election. So I guess you're right. That must be the biggest Upset. Of course, whenever an incumbent loses election, that's an upset as well. And so that, I guess that's a different type of upset. But if you look at recent incumbent losses, Jimmy Carter to Reagan in 1980 and um, other incumbent losses, the senior Bush to Clinton in 1992, H.W. Bush in, uh, to Clinton in 92 was a, not an upset, but it was a change of the political landscape. George H.W. George Bush was the president in 1991, and in January of 1991, we went to the first Persian Gulf War. And his approval rating went up all the way to 89, 90%, only exceeded by his son... son after 9-11. And people thought that George H.W. Um, Bush would win a second term as president. However, his approval started to tail off as economic concerns became more important. And by the election year, there were two candidates running against Bush, Russ Perot as an independent and um, Bill Clinton as the Democrat. And so his defeat was going to be predicted a few weeks out, but it would not have been predicted at the beginning of 1991. Um, I, I mean, and I, I look at, too, the like 2016 election, like leading up to it, I, again, I... Obviously, Trump won, but I thought it was, you know, leading up to it, it seemed like Hillary was the front runner by quite a bit. And I was actually surprised that on that election night, and then, and really, I'll, I'm going with the ones that I've personally voted in. Um, so, 08, 12, 16, and 20 were the four that I've been legal um, age to vote in. And all of them, I felt prior to the election, you could probably pick who was going to win. Um, that was the only one that I was surprised. That Trump beat Hillary, where I thought like Obama in 08, I thought was going to win. I thought he was going to win again in 12. And I thought, um, 
you know, obviously 2020 being polarizing, but I, I did feel that Biden was going to win. So like to me, I don't know if that feels like that wasn't um, an upset in 2016 or was that, do you feel that that wasn't? One of the um, ideas I put out um, at the early time of the interview was the idea of a time for a change. And so when Hillary Clinton was running, she was running after Barack Obama had already served eight years as a Democratic president. And so that was a pull on her ability to win because the Democrats were in office for eight years and people were starting to think that it's time for a change. But of course, Hillary Clinton became the third president to win the popular vote and lose in the electoral vote. On my count, I don't count Andrew Jackson because he didn't actually um, lose in the, um, the... The four that did it were the, um, the last four, um, 1876, 1888, I think, um, and um, these last two. So Hillary Clinton, one thing that hurt her was the time for a change where she was being dragged down because Obama had been in office for eight years and she was looking for 12 straight years of Democratic um, rule in the White House. And the second was the um, idea that she actually won the popular vote, but she had a lot of wasted votes, they call it, because she ran up her votes in California and New York State. And so in some ways she won the election, but the electoral vote map shifted. Now, Donald Trump, his approval rating going to the election was 46-47%. And that was the exact percentage of the vote that he got in the election. Because that election of 2016 was a referendum on the job that Donald Trump did. But where he failed this time was he wasn't able to parlay his percentage of the vote into a majority of the electoral votes because a certain number of states that were very close shifted. Let's call it Pennsylvania and was Georgia, um, that, Wisconsin. That's, that's a little different of a story, but let's call it um, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin. Michigan, yep. Ohio? Ohio? Ohio's usually a pretty swing state, right? Ohio has been a state that no Republican has ever won the presidency without Ohio. But in recent years, Ohio has shifted a little bit more to the Republican Party, as has Florida. But Georgia is a different case. Georgia is a case of realignment uh, in a in a democratic um, way. So Georgia was part of the solid democratic South, but as the race issue became driving um, change in the electorate, it shifted Republican like the rest of the South. But the composition of the Georgia electorate has become more racially diverse. And with it, the vote for the Republicans have increased in the state of Georgia. So if you look back at the 2020 January 21 election, 
Georgia had major upsets because Georgia voted Democratic for the presidency and then it elected two Democratic U.S. senators, Ossoff and Warnock. And traditionally, Georgia had been a Republican Senate duo of seats. And so one of the problems for Georgia was that their elected Republican senator decided to retire and two seats were open and both of those seats went to the Democrats and that tied the Senate at 50-50 and gave the Democrats the tie-breaking vote in the Senate. And so the retirement of a Republican senator, which then led to a an appointed Republican senator led to two Democratic pickups in the U.S. Senate in January of 2021. So I guess, I guess I'm kind of jumping around because I have some questions and then I want to dive into some of the, the races going on. Um, how viable do you think a third party would ever become? Do you think that, that that time's passed? Do you think it will come back full circle? It's not viable because of the way the system is set up. The system is set up like sponges. And so if you think of sponges, the Democratic Party can be a blue sponge and the Republican Party can be a pink or red sponge. And they absorb all the candidates that are around them. So let's say a person is conservative and they want to run for office. Are they going to run on the conservative party ticket or are they going to try to run as a Republican? If you win the Republican primary, then you're able to get all the Republican voters and money. If you're a liberal, are you going to run for the president as a working families candidate or are you going to try to get the Democratic nomination? If you get the Democratic nomination, then you're going to get all the Democratic voters and their money. And so in order to run in a congressional race or state legislative race, all you have to do is file petition papers and then you can run and then you can win a major party nomination. And so the two parties absorb all the candidates who have ambition to be in politics. When you go to a city that's strongly for one party, they absorb all of the viable candidates further and people fight it out in the Democratic primary for Senate or governor or in a Republican area they fight it out in the Republican primary. So the primaries prevent the growth of third parties as do other factors. The way they count votes with only one person winning per district, the way that we have a history and tradition of um, two parties in this country. Yeah, I just always think that it, it, the uh, chips are stacked against any, like a third party. Because you said Ross Perot was the, the last true third party that probably did anything in the early 90s. Obviously, Teddy Roosevelt came in second, you know, in the actual vote. But, um, I mean, in recent times, Ross Perot was the only one that was probably in the, in the, Ralph Nader, he was a big name at one point. But I don't know how much he actually, I remember him when I was young. I don't know how many, how much of the vote he actually got, though. Well, Ross Perot ran twice. When he ran in um, the first time, he ran as an independent candidate. 
And then when he ran the second time, he ran as a Reform Party candidate. So the first time he ran, he was an independent candidate, and the second time, he was a third-party candidate. Now, the Green Party with Ralph Nader goes down in American uh, folklore because the state of Florida had a margin of 537 votes in the presidential election of 2000, but they also had 25 electoral votes. And George W. Bush was stuck at 246 votes, and you need 270 to win. And Al Gore was stuck at 267. And Nader got 97,488 votes in Florida. And when people parsed the numbers using exit poll numbers, they found that Nader caused Gore to lose the um, state of Florida and thereby the presidential elections because the 25 electoral votes of Florida added to the 246 gave the um, Republican candidate 271 and Gore was at 267. And so Nader probably had the most impact on the presidency in terms of who actually became president in 2000. So I have a couple questions, and like I said, on the history, and I want to dive into some local one or some local, but also some uh, current races. So I saw this the other day. There's a story, and I don't know how legitimate this could actually be, but there's the idea that of people trying to switch the border line of Oregon and Idaho. Have you seen that? I haven't seen that particular one, but um, from time to time. There are people clamor to change the borders of um, states that they find themselves um, within. But there is no history of that since the states have been um, settled. Of course, earlier in American history, the new states broke off from older states, where the older states owned the territory, like Maine broke off from Massachusetts. Wasn't Virginia rather large? Too? Yes, okay. and Kentucky broke off out of them. One of the last states then that happened with actually on the eastern side of the country was West Virginia. West Virginia was part of Virginia, mm -hmm. but then at the time of the Civil War, they broke away and became a separate state. Based on ideologies with Virginia? Probably was based on um, not wanting to leave the Union, I would guess. Okay. That so, um, so the idea with the Oregon and Idaho split is that Oregon would lose like geographically a lot of a lot of land. Now I don't know how much of the population would actually lose, but basically what they're saying the people in Oregon was like our votes on more of the eastern side of the state are irrelevant. Kind of like I would say, um, you know, like New York State or California, they're always going to go more democratic because you have those, you know, L.A., you have uh, New York City, you have these bigger, you know, um, uh, cities that pull a lot of the votes. But that's what they're stating is that Oregon on the whole right side is very, it, and they've it's kind of publicized local or uh, within the state that most people don't really care anything about the right side of the state because it's really run by the left side of the state. And I'm talking geographical west versus east. So what they wanted to do is pretty much move the Oregon border in or Idaho border into Oregon, and Idaho would then become Idaho with like a you know part of Oregon sticking out the west side of it. 
um, to encompass those people into Idaho, which I believe is more Republican voting versus Oregon, which is more um, Democratic voting. So I had never seen that before. Now, granted, I don't know how much legs are actually behind this campaign, but it sounds like there's quite a few people on that. And I think it's gotten to the point where it's almost at the state level to shift the borders around for the voting. Now, I always look at something like that as that does set quite the precedence of what could possibly happen in other states. Um, but it just stuck out to me because like, oh, I've never heard that before, that states are just going to say, we're just going to pick up the border and move it based on, you know, what we want to, um, you know, maybe, maybe attempt to skew or attempt to manipulate certain votes in the future. That's right. That's called regionalism. So most states have different populations in different regions of the state. So New York State has many regions, but you have New York City, which in fact has its own five boroughs, with Staten Island being more conservative politically than the other four boroughs. And then you have Long Island, which has two um, counties. And then you have the northern suburban counties, and so Long Island is Nassau and Suffolk, and the, the suburban counties outside of uh, New York are Westchester, Rockland, Putnam, and Orange. And then you have the North Country, and you have the Capital Region, you have the um, western part of the state um, around Erie County. So states have that, but some places get very dissatisfied with the direction of the state and they from time to time want to split the state or they want to secede from the state but in modern times that hasn't occurred so my next well i'm going to piggyback first with a, a question i think you could answer pretty quickly and i think you answered it last podcast and i want to jump into kind of a bigger thought process but Maine and Nebraska, what was it? What was the deal with last election where Maine in you like you'd see the map and there'd be like a chunk of the state that was a different color than the rest of the state? So there's almost like they split up the electoral college votes. Like I think Matt, uh, Maine gets five, and I think it was like four to one or something. It was a weird. I think it was Maine and Nebraska. I might have the states wrong. Maybe Oklahoma. The, you're correct. Ma- Maine has four electoral votes because they have two congressional districts. One that's in the southern part of the state and one that's in the large northern um, territory of the state. And so they split votes because them and um, Nebraska have the district plan. In Nebraska, they have three congressional districts. And the one near Omaha, Nebraska, is more liberal than the rest of the state. So in elections past, sometimes those states have split. And Donald Trump, he was very aware of the district in um, Maine that he could win. Because when he was up in Plattsburgh, he was saying, and I'm going to Maine, I love that Maine. And he, he was very desirous of winning delegates because he was here in April of that year. Um, so, but he, he, he went to Maine in order to win that one electoral vote because he felt that could help him win the um, presidency. And 
presidents, Democratic presidents, once or twice have won that one out of five votes in Nebraska as well. How, how long has that been? Not long. Uh, around 1992, they, they shifted. I, I don't think it was much before then. I, I don't remember ever seeing it until the last election. What, what were actually was diff, two different votes. Like typically, I had always seen, like if Maine, which typically I think is more um, democratic, you would see the whole state. I mean, I'm looking at the map, like the, the you know the, the color coded map here. Typically, I always saw that just completely blue. And then the last election, they had like blue with I think like red diagonal arrow or lines on it, and that was the first time that I'd ever. That's I right. never saw the difference. That's right. One textbook had um, Nebraska a couple of uh, years ago, and then they had a one, a circle, <laughs> because that's what the Democrats got. Then in the next edition, but before the pre, the next presidential election, they made a mistake and they took it out. But yeah, you can win in Nebraska. The Democrats could win the Omaha district, and in Maine, the Republicans can win the Northern district. So... How come more states don't go that route? Because states want to magnify their impact in the electoral vote. So it's kind of an ego thing. It's kind of, they want more attention from the candidates. And so what they want is candidates to say, I better go to Florida because Florida has so many electoral votes. They don't want to say, well, I'm going to get almost half of Florida, Florida's votes anyhow, so I'm not going to bother. So to magnify, so the large states that are competitive want to magnify their impact. And the small states that are with few votes, they don't want to dilute themselves altogether. So they keep it winner take all, but that's for each state to decide. So my next question, my bigger question, which I think kind of builds off of that is, so the how long has the electoral college been around? And then also because you, you've talked about, you know the the popular vote, you know it's a couple uh, you know candidates have won the popular vote, but then losing the electoral college. Like, how come the electoral college, if even if they want to keep the electoral college, how come they don't break it down? I guess I mean you kind of just answered a little bit with the last one. Um, but how long has the Electoral College been around, and do you ever think that we'll see a change from the Electoral College of the winner-take-all system? Because um, to me, it makes more sense on some of these factors, like the Maine and Nebraska, to say, like, okay, it makes more sense should you have, like, let's take New York. You know, historically, New York City is is democratic, and, you, you know, you go through a couple of the other major city pockets, and then you go into, like, if you ever see the map, it's usually broken down of, majority of of the geographic area is always colored in red and then the bigger pockets which are more populous are in blue which is typically the cities or the coastlines if you go by actual population because people tend to go to those areas you end up having like the popular vote get pulled and you could have a bunch of states get like california sways one way because they have so many i think you know major cities that end up drawing kind of more democratic vote do you find that it would make more sense or more representation, and I think this kind of goes off of the Oregon-Idaho example, and I think the Maine and Nebraska, that does it make more sense to have regional, like you said, New York has five or six regionals regions. Does it make sense to have all of them have their own 
mini winner take all system where you could split New York, say instead of twenty, was it twenty nine or thirty? Um, a little bit less now. Um, New York in the last election had twenty um, nine, but in twenty twenty four, the New York State will have twenty eight. Okay, so if you looked at like say New York State takes, you know, arguably you know maybe twelve, thirteen, fourteen of those just based on population would potentially like Western New York have three or four electoral college votes up for grabs and it may not go to the same candidate. Would that make more sense going forward? And again, I don't know how plausible this would be, but because I think that that comes up a lot is that you people in different states feel they don't have a voice at a certain level. I mean, in local politics, absolutely. When it gets to the national stage, you can, I mean, how many presidential candidates and when you're talking, uh, Political scientists at election are already coloring states in certain colors because they already know it's going to go one way or the other. The Electoral College came with the Constitution. At the Electoral, uh, at the Constitutional Convention, they didn't really know how to elect the president. That became a point of contention. Some people said, for example, in the original um, Virginia plan, that the president should be selected by the Congress. And then people objected and said that would make a president too dependent upon the legislative branch. Then James Wilson of Pennsylvania said, let's have direct election of presidents. And that was um, voted down as well. So then some of the great powers at the Constitutional Convention sat in a committee and they came up with the electoral vote, where each state should have electoral votes equal to its members of the Congress, House seats plus Senate seats. The way each state would select their members of the Electoral College, however, would be up to the individual state. And so initially, there weren't presidential elections, but the electors were voted on by state legislatures. But quickly, by the 1820s, the states went to popular election for presidential electors. Only one state, probably South Carolina, waited to after the Civil War to go to popular election for presidents. And so there's never been a time when we did not have an electoral vote. This became a problem in 1800, because in 1800, there was a tie in the electoral vote, Jefferson and Aaron Burr. And the U.S. House decided after many ballots for Jefferson. Then in 1824, no candidate received the majority of the electoral vote. Jackson came in first but he didn't get the vote of the U.S. House. That went to John Quincy Adams. Then we went a while without any problems with the electoral vote. But then we had two, 1876 and once in the 1880s. And then I used to tell classes that if that ever happened again, we would have the Constitution amended and we would have direct election of the president. But of course, I was wrong. And there's been no move to change the Constitution with respect to the electoral vote. There's been a move among states 
to guarantee that their electors go to the winner of the national popular vote. But that has never materialized as well. So up until the popular, up until the current day, we still have the idea that the popular vote winner can lose the electoral vote. And so it has happened twice in this century if 2000 is considered part of the 21st um, century. But there is no real movement to amend the Constitution to get rid of the electoral vote because you wouldn't have the 38 states necessary ultimately to ratify that amendment. Yeah, oh, it- oh, now you asked also about regional electoral votes. You have that when they have presidential nominations. For example, I, I mentioned earlier that Donald Trump was here in April 2016. He was campaigning for the Republican Party nomination. And the 21st Congressional District at the time was allocated three delegates to the National Party Convention within the Republican New York State primary. So if he came up here and won 50% or more of the vote, he would get all three electoral votes that went to the 21st Congressional District. And so he went to the Crate Center, they spruced it up, they put on new carpet and everything, and he was right there. And he begged for the vote, and he got over the necessary 50%, and he got all three electoral votes. And then afterwards, he went to Syracuse and asked for elect. He got all three delegates, and he went there and won all three delegates to the Republican National Convention from that congressional district. But in electoral votes, it's statewide. What you're suggesting is what they call the district plan. The district plan would have two electoral votes for the winner of the state and one electoral vote for every congressional district within the state. And so Maine and Nebraska have the district plan. An alternate plan would be the proportional plan where the electoral votes are divided by the vote proportionally between the candidates. I mean, do you think any of these have, again, any legs to to potentially turn into something plausible? Um, I don't want to be morbid here, but not in my lifetime. um, (laughs) But you're such a young um, person, maybe in yours, but it doesn't look very likely. The, The movement among the states to pledge to vote for the national popular vote winner, that had some momentum, but petered out. And so that has more opportunity than a constitutional amendment. But individual states could change up their movement and go from a winner-take-all to a district plan, though there's no momentum that I see around the country. So that, that, that would be left up to the states. That's left up to the states. So, and again, I have three more questions, then we're going to dive into some local stuff. So um, Washington, D.C. has electoral college votes, but does not have a representative in Congress. That's right. Washington, D.C. never had electoral votes, but there was an amendment to the Constitution 
that gave District of Columbia electoral votes equal to the smallest state. Which is Vermont? Well, there's about six states going forward, and maybe six or seven in the past, that had three electoral votes. Delaware, the home of Joe Biden, has three electoral votes. Vermont has three electoral um, Wyoming. votes. Wyoming has three electoral um, votes. Alaska has three electoral um, votes. Some states go back and forth, like Montana has one, then sometimes it has two electoral um, votes. New Hampshire has four electoral votes. Rhode Island has four electoral votes. Maine has four electoral votes. Wait, you said for Montana. You, you can't go under three, though, right? Because don't you need a rep in two Senates? You're right. Um, Senate seats. So, ha, ha, um, so how it would be is Montana goes between one and two representatives. Oh, state. I got you. Yeah. And so they could go between three and four electoral votes. Yep. I think they may have changed. That's why they're in my... In my early days, they had two, and then they went to one. But they may be going back to two. But and Delaware has three electoral votes, and... Um, as you said, Vermont has three electoral votes, Wyoming, Alaska. Certain states stay at two. So that's where Hawaii always has four electoral votes. I mean, two members of the House, four electoral votes. And those New England states have four electoral votes. So how come D.C. doesn't have any representative in Congress? Okay, so... Like, I should say they have a representative. They can't vote, though. That's right. Eleanor Holmes Norton has been the elected person of D.C. In the, um, con in the U.S. House of Representatives. There's a number of territories in addition to the District of Columbia that have representation in the U.S. House. They have different titles, but they all have the same power. They can serve on committees and vote in committees, but they do not have a vote on the floor of the House. So Norton, who represents D.C., has done it for many years, has participation opportunities in the House, but has no vote on the floor of the House of Representatives because the amendment to the Constitution just gave D.C. A, um, electoral votes. D.C. also has no U.S. senators, that's a problem for uh, others in the country, in addition to D.C. The Republicans do not want to give D.C. two senators because D.C. is the strongest voting Democratic state in the Electoral College. So if D.C. got two senators for the foreseeable future, the Democrats would get two senators. Correct, yes. So what I had watched um, and I'd learned about that, that was exactly what they said, was the reason why it was always going to get stymied at, at the uh, um, the federal level. So now what about U.S. territories? They can they vote, but they don't get electoral college? Puerto Rico, Guam? They don't even vote. They, they don't have representation in the electoral college. Okay. So... The parties, though, give the territories representation within the party. So, for example, the, um, if you look at the makeup of the Republican National Committee, it has 168 members. 
because it has three members from 56 states and territories. But the territories do not have any um, electoral votes. How many territories are there? No offhand? About five or six, I, I would okay. say. Um, and is there any, I guess, any, any uh, way that would be changed, you think? Where like Puerto Rico might have a couple votes or at least Electoral College or Guam? Because it'd have to be states at that point, right? Well, that would be two separate processes. Um, they, could, they could be granted through electoral... Um, they could be granted through constitutional amendments, whatever status they can. Just like D.C. didn't become a state, but they got three um, electoral votes. But they can join the union through um, the mechanisms of Congress. But there isn't really support for that. Again, politics, partisan politics plays in. But you have to realize that the last two states to be admitted were back in 1959, 1960, Alaska and Hawaii. So after about 1912, I think it was Arizona that came in, we went to 1960 before we had Alaska and Hawaii. And since then, the number of states has been set at 50. It's such a round number. And with 100 senators and 50 states, it's very easy to do division <laughs> and percentages. So I would have a lot of resistance to changing the numbers. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, the so when we when we talk about um, like one of the things, I, and again, I don't think I'm I'm I think I'm in the majority of this is the political uh, from a media standpoint, the political commercials and and things that we see just in our face. You know, I'm getting text messages daily about vote for this person, this you know, and. Uh, getting flyers dropped off at the house. And obviously those are all tactics of um, advertising and, and marketing and whatever for the candidates. Have, in your time, have you felt that, and this might be just kind of the the divide in the country, have you ever seen political campaign commercials be kind of as, say it's, it's term nasty? Like they, they feel like they're missing the, like the boat. It's more of like a, it's just like attacking a certain person over and over again. And I mean, not every political campaign is a flattering campaign for the other person, but I feel like as of, you know, the last handful of elections, it's, it's like progressively getting worse and worse. So like when you watch TV, it's almost like you think that the other person running is the worst person, you know, on the face of the planet. And then they'll come back with this complete opposite commercial bashing that candidate. Do you find, I mean, a lot of your, like your research and stuff has, does it, tie into the marketing aspect or the, the media aspect of it? Well, when a candidate advertises in a campaign, there's three types of ads that they run. One of the ads is biographical. So at the outset of a um, campaign, a person who hasn't been in office before will run biographical ads so people get to know their experience, their military experience, their family, their legislative experience, the fact that they grew up in the area. That is at the beginning. And then they run positive campaigns talking about their achievements. Negative advertising is when you denigrate your opponent. 
you can put a more positive spin on negative advertising by calling it comparative advertising and saying you're just comparing your record against that of your challenger. And so as long as I've been around, people have been moaning and saying that negative advertising is really bad for the political system. But it's always been around because it works. And so negative advertising works because when you negative advertise against your opponent, your opponent has to get off their own message and defend themselves against the charges. And so if you can level charges against an opponent and the opponent doesn't answer the charges, then the charges stick. But if the opponent decides to defend him or herself, then they're getting off their own positive or attack ads. And so that works as well. So people always say there's so much negative advertising, but ad negative advertising works and it's always been around for um, as long as we've had politics. I mean, I, f I feel like there's obviously, there's merit to it in the sense that it, it does work. It's just it just crazy when, when you look at a lot of these campaign commercials, like just, to me, they're, they're, they're uh, I don't want to say they're, they're effective, I guess, with what they're trying to reach. Because I think that most people don't look at something from the lens of this might be overly biased on one side or the other. Um, I try to look at every campaign commercial as, as you know, you take it with a, was a, a grain of salt that this is not necessarily probably coming coming from the most, uh, like, I, they're, they're there to serve a purpose at the end of the day. And I, I just find it, it seems like they get, they're getting worse and worse and, you know, and then also, it's not even that actual candidate. You're getting a lot of these other, you know, um, organizations that are running these campaigns. At a, uh, you know, typically these are like I call it like a smear campaign, or you know, there's talking down comparison, but they're talking down on a candidate, but they're not even running. It's paid for somebody that supports this candidate, but is running an ad at someone else as almost like a private organization. So I'm sure that this has happened. Before TV and commercials, I'm sure papers they had them. I'm sure flyers. I'm sure there's people, you know, 1700 standing out in the square bashing George Washington. You know, like I'm sure it's been around since politics, but it just it seems like it just keeps kind of getting more elevated and more. And again, I think it just plays into the uh, the split nature of what we're starting to really see nationally. Like it's, it just seems like it's getting worse. Like where people are identifying. A certain side so it's like an us versus them mentality and i don't think it's the majority of people i think it's the extreme and the extreme are the ones that make headlines and it's kind of a what is it if it uh bleeds it leads or whatever that was that term where in the paper where if it's something that's juicy or gossipy or or, or polarizing that will get more eyeballs than hey all these people kind of feel about the same way and it's not that's not as you know that doesn't really draw the attention or the readership or viewership does that sound right? Well, you identified an important trend in politics, and that's what some people call that's what some people call the parallel campaign, or um, where groups that are outside each candidate is in charge of their own candidate campaign. So every candidate for office has a candidate committee. But there are other groups that spend money in a campaign as well. Those may be called a parallel campaign or outside groups. And those groups tend to be more negative than the candidate campaign. 
This way they can get their messages in there and the candidate cannot be accused of going negative on their um, opponent. So you correctly identified that trend. Let me ask you, when you hear a campaign advertisement, watch it on television or whatever media, do you think differently of a message that you receive from a candidate that you're prone to support as opposed to a candidate that you're prone to um, disagree? I think... I would think I am naturally more inclined to side with the person that I would agree with currently. Meaning like if I like some of these campaign commercials I watch and I'm like I already know who I'm voting for based on what I what I think is important. But I won't say that's there's people that I will vote for that I think their campaigns are terrible. Like I think they're just bad nasty campaigns. I agree more with their policies then I would agree with their marketing campaign or, or their advertising. They know it works. It comes from both sides. Um, would I, do I find that I have bias towards a candidate that I would vote for? I'm sure I do, you know, without, and I'm sure it's the same where I see people that don't like a candidate or quicker to attack or say attack, but quicker possibly to say negative about a candidate they don't support. And I I think I'm in the, you know, in that same realm as I think if I watch, um, a campaign commercial that is somebody I know I'm not going to vote for or don't agree with, I'm more likely to criticize that commercial than someone I agree with, even though I don't might, I might not like that commercial. I feel like I probably wouldn't voice my opinion as much. I might just say this is a dumb commercial. They have my vote, but I don't care for the commercial or the ad. So what you're doing is you're screening out information that doesn't agree with what you intend to do or the way you're leaning. And so a lot of the ads are really to galvanize their supporters to come out to vote as much as to persuade people who are leaning in the other way. So when they run ads, they have the ability to get time on the air, but the ad is not as credible as in a news story where there's some sort of moderation as to the content of the material. Though, as there's been a decline in the media's trust among the public, the content of news is not as important as well among uh, voters. Yeah, it's just... I mean, it's just that time of year. You know you're going to get it. You know, you get slammed with the commercials. You know, if you watch the news at night, it's just you know, four of the five commercials are some political commercial right now. And again, they're paying the money. So these, you know, the, whether it's CAX or WPTZ, they're grabbing, you know, the advertising dollars. Cause right now it's probably an easy time to sell ads because you just you hit up all the candidates and all the, all the, all the people running that. But, um, so I want to, I want to dive into some of the local, like I have a ballot here. Um, and I believe this is, yeah, this is the Clinton County ballot. So, um, some of the races that we have, and again, I'm just going to kind of start left to right and kind of want to hear your thoughts on, on, um, that certain, obviously, uh, um, the election. So the first one's governor, um, and Lieutenant governor. So we have, Ka uh, Kathy Hochul and, uh, Lee Zeldin. Those are the, the two main ones and then the, the, uh, Lieutenant governor is with them. But, um, obviously Kathy was appointed and is running for her 
first this is her first time running correct that's right and then so she because she was she obviously was appointed after cuomo left office but um and then zeldin is the republican candidate he's running against kathy who's the the current uh incumbent so how is that shaking up right now what what's your thoughts on that race well in new york state any statewide democrat has a big advantage because if you look at the state of new york the Democrats, if you look at actively enrolled as of earlier this year, they they're not, they didn't update it quite yet. They have to update it this week. Has 3.3 more. So there's 3.3 million more Republicans enrolled as voters than uh, Democrats have 5.9 million enrolled and Republicans have 2.6 million. So there's 3.3 million more. Democrats enrolled to vote in this state. So any statewide race, the Democrats have a big advantage in that um, race. So when you look at the statewide races, all the incumbents are Democrats. And so this race is starting to look more close than people thought it would be at the um, outset, whereby Governor Hochul had a lead of double digits earlier in the year, but that's now considered to be a single-digit race. I mean, do you think that one will actually end up being close? I think it's going to be close because of her approval rating. In any election, you have a referendum on the incumbent in office. So I've been looking at the approval ratings of um, Governor Hochul, and I felt that in order to ensure easy re-election, she has to boost her approval rating. Well, a few of the polls have her up to 52, 53% approval, but that's not a comfortable level of approval. And then the Quinnipiac poll which um, really got out of the business of looking at gubernatorial approval in New York State after it had been the first one to actually measure it, found Hochul to be only 46% approval. That poll was very damning on Hochul's um, voting percentages, but I, I thought that's a little bit less than her approval should be. But she really hasn't been able to get her approval up to 55, 56%. So Siena poll has her at 52% approval and Quinnipiac has her at 46% approval and you need about 50% to win in a two-person race because New York State for the first time since 1946 in this election will have only two candidates on the gubernatorial ballot. The state of New York changed their ballot over um, since the last governor's election and they increase the number of votes that a party needs in order to get on the ballot automatically, and the number of petitions needed by candidates not of a party to get on the ballot. So in a two-party race, you kind of need 50%. And so if your approval high is around 53%, you can get 53 to 55%. And if your approval low is 46%, you better get it up to 50%. So it looks like it's going to be tight, but I'm only reading what 
the media and the polling agencies have been putting out there. How, how, uh, how accurate do you find that those are? And what's, I guess, what's the standard deviation on some of these, if you had to pick a number? Because you were kind of saying about 3%, roughly? They're close enough. I track in my own, I didn't bring it um, or think about it too much today, but I track the relationship between the presidential approval and the presidential vote, and I do that for governor as well. So with Cuomo, the last two go-arounds, there was some variation of three, four points between his last approval in, in Quinnipiac or elsewhere and his vote. Sometimes it was higher and sometimes it was lower. So there, it's not a one-to-one. -one. And the trend with Hochul approval hasn't been up as much as people thought it would be. And so her approval suggests that she has to make the choice. She has to make the election a choice between her and her opponent rather than a referendum on her uh, that her performance. So I suppose it's going to be closer. Certainly it's going to be closer than anyone thought. Now let me give some ideas that I came out with at the beginning of this talk to say that it shouldn't be a complete surprise. It shouldn't be a complete surprise because New York State voters every once in a while feel that it's time for a change. And the Democrats have been in office for a long time now in the governor's mansion and elsewhere across the state. And so if there's unhappiness with the direction of the state for whatever reason, that goes to how the people perceive the Democrats because the Democrats have been in charge for so long. So... So you think that Hochul's going to squeeze it out, but in a close, it'd be closer than you would anticipate well, months that, ago. That's why I'm nervous. <laughs> the, the conventional wisdom. This is, is what we let off with, with the, at the start. Yeah, that's what I, I thought we'd be getting into right away. But what happened is, um, some agencies, um, some private firms that look at this like real clear politics, they look at the numbers and then they say. It's a toss-up, but the, the Democrats should hold the governorship. That's how they um, reconcile it. But in a two-person race, anything can happen. Now, if I wake up the next day and it's 55-45, I would say, well, I should have seen this the whole way because that's what it would have been without any um, campaign blitz by the Republicans. So people are thinking that the Democrats have to get with it in this last um, week. And Democrats are paying more attention to the New York State governorship through money and surrogates, as are Republicans who are sending up surrogates from out of state as well. So I would say the surrogates from other states would not be coming here if they thought there wasn't some momentum toward tightening of the race. What I hear is strictly from the media, and that seems to be how people are acting, that it's a tightening. First, it came with the Trafalgar poll, then it came with other polls, and 
each pole gets progressively closer. And then when I break down the poles, I see the, um, the breakdown of the approval rating of Hochul and see that it hasn't really picked up through the uh, time. So, for example, the Siena poll of September 28th had Hochul approval at 53% and had Hochul getting 54% of the vote. And then the Siena poll in October had Hochul approval to 52% and her getting 52% of the vote. Now, Quinnipiac had her getting 50% of the vote with 46% approval. So all I could see is the trend. And so the Democrats are going to have to find a way to stem the tide. But, Ho but Hochul is facing a very much enthusiastic challenger now. And so Lee Zeldin has been in the boroughs. This morning he was in um, Staten Island at diners. Staten Island is the biggest Republican borough in the city of, in the city of New York. And over the weekend, perhaps he was out in Brooklyn trying to find votes among the different um, ethnic groups in Brooklyn. So he's really going to where the voters are in New York City, and he's not conceding. He feels that if he can get his vote up to 37, 38% of New York City, then he will win the election. If he gets less than 30% of the election, he feels he's doomed. And so he's trying to boost his vote in New York City. Hochul is trying to hold on. She really is not adding to the vote that Democrats get in um, the gubernatorial election. But until the votes are in, we don't really know what has ha what happened. So what about, um, so we have Comptroller, we have... Um, am I pronouncing that right? Comptroller? Yeah, it's spelled... Um, it has a P in there. Comptroller. They call it state comptroller, and when they put the uh, state voting records, it goes right after governor. So there's three statewide executive um, races, and it's always the governor, lieutenant governor is one, and then state comptroller, and then attorney general. So that's considered a big... Um, and, and this is... And they're all four-year terms, so they all they come up every four years, and which is the midterm. So uh, Thomas DiNapoli, who is currently the comptroller, going against Paul Rodriguez, and then uh, and honestly, I don't even know the attorney general. Latidia James versus Michael Henry, which is actually funny. My my childhood best friend is Michael Henry, but um, I don't think he's running for the attorney general in New York State. But the uh, so the two. On those, obviously, they don't grab as much attention as the governor race, but where, where's your thoughts on those two? Well, those races are a little bit um, different. So in those races, you have two um, Democratic incumbents running again. So Thomas DiNapoli from um, Long Island is the in incumbent state comptroller, and He's running against Paul Rodriguez, as you said, and he is going to win. His opponent has not gathered enough name recognition to make it a competitive race. And Letitia James is the AG, the aspiring governor, and she is running for another term as attorney general. And the same way Michael Henry, the challenger, has not gotten the name recognition needed to make that a 
competitive race. So they form the Democratic statewide executive ticket. Letitia James in 2018 was part of the um, Andrew Cuomo ticket coming out of the 2018 New York State Democratic um, State Committee meeting. But as Attorney General, she was very strident against Cuomo when it came to um, the harassment charges. Initially, she thought she would run for governor herself, but then she went back into her lane of Attorney General and is waiting, perhaps, to run for governor. If you think about it, um, Andrew Cuomo was Attorney General before he became governor, as was Elliot Spitzer. So Attorney General James and Thomas DiNapoli are going to win their races. It looks um, quite likely that that's the case. So the senator race, Chuck Schumer's up against Joe uh, Pinion, which I'm assuming... Chuck Schumer's probably a shoe in on that one. Well, or is that is that not the case? I kind of feel like he's just been there forever. Well, Schumer is a historic figure in New York State politics. He was first elected to the U.S. House in 1980 and served there for 18 years, nine terms. He made a big decision. I probably would not make that decision. He decided to give up his safe seat in Brooklyn, New York, and run for the U.S. Senate against Alphonse D'Amato, the Republican incumbent uh, senator, in 1998. And he beat Alphonse D'Amato. And he has won four terms as U.S. senator. He's, he's the fourth New York State senator to ever win four terms of office. The other three were Robert Wagner, Jacob Javits, and Daniel Patrick Moynihan. But Schumer, if he gets elected in 2022, will be the first New York State Senator since Senate elections for the US Senate came to New York State in 1914 to win five terms as Senator from New York State. He's benefited from two things. One, his careful constituent service. He's known for visiting all 62 counties in New York State for every year since he first ran for office in 1998. Also, he is the recipient of the Democratic Party increased strength in New York State. So as the Democrats have become stronger in New York State, Schumer has also benefited as well. And not only that, he's the majority leader of the U.S. Senate. So he's interested in two races in Election Day. He's interested in being elected to the U.S. Senate for six more years. And he's also interested in the Democrats holding Don to 50 seats because they need to hold on to 50 seats for him to remain as majority leader of the U.S. Senate. How does one um, become the majority, or become the nominated for the majority leader of any, of the Senate, House of Reps? Is that just voted on amongst the group? That, how that works is every member of the U.S. Senate and U.S. House belongs to what they call a party conference. The Democrats call it the party caucus, 
but the other three call it the conference. So in Schumer's case, it's the Democratic conference of senators. So Senator Schumer became very useful to Harry Reid, who was a leader of the Senate from um, Nevada. And he helped the um, Democrats gain many seats in elections across the country. And he became the third ranking member of the um, Democrats in the U.S. Senate. He was friends and his friends with Dick Durbin, who is the Republican uh, second, the, the whip in the Senate. And Harry Reid designated Schumer as his preferred successor as leader of the Democrats in the Senate. So Schumer, by a vote of the Republican, excuse me, Schumer, by a vote of the Democratic conference in the Senate, became the Democratic Party um, leader. And what year was that? That would have been effective January of 2017, because my memory is that he served four years as minority leader. So when Harry Reid left, Schumer leapfrogged over um, Durbin of Illinois and became the minority leader. Then when the Democrats captured a majority of the of the Senate by winning those two special elections in January 2021, McConnell and Schumer switched jobs because of the tie-breaking vote of Kamala Harris. And McConnell switched from majority leader to minority leader, and Schumer became in a 50-50 Senate with Kamala Harris, the majority leader of the Senate. So Schumer's constituency are the, rep are the Democrats in conference, and McConnell's constituency are the Republican in conference. Schumer, in order to stay as majority leader then, has to win the vote of his conference and then the vote of the whole Senate. What is the whip? The whip The only is, reason I know this, did you ever watch House of Cards? I, I never watched House of Cards because I did not want to mix up what I know from what is <laughs> fictional embellishment. So, so no. well, the main guy in, in the show, Frank Underwood, was the whip when he started in the first the first uh, season. So what is the what's the whip in Congress? The whip in the um, House, in the majority party, the whip is the third ranking officer. So in the majority party, let's take the the Democrats now because they're the majority in the House. Mm -hmm. The whip, so you have the speaker, then you have the majority leader, then you have the whip. The whip is third in line for the leadership in the party. The speaker is the person who's in charge of the majority party, but also is the presiding officer of the House. The majority leader fights for the party program. The whip's job is to make sure members of the party know that there's a vote and make sure that they vote the way the party wants. They might have whip notices which tell members of the party what is going to be on the floor, what is the calendar, and what is the preferred position of the party. So that's the third ranking position. The minority party in the House has the minority leader and the minority whip and they have their conference chair. 
in the Senate, they have fewer members, so there's not as much of a party hierarchy. They have majority leader and majority whip, minority leader and minority whip. So in each party, they have a leading senator and a second senator. I'm looking them up, up some of them right now, and I don't know any of the names. So I mean, they're like... What's the name that you see there? Well, I'm going back. I think this is... I just did a quick search. Again, Google doing all the research here. Dem the Democratic whips. Um, right now is James Clyburn. James Clyburn is a very important figure. He really is someone who's a favorite of Nancy Pelosi. And so when the Democrats were in the minority and they didn't have a third position, Nancy Pelosi made him a uh, special position in the party leadership. And James Clyburn is very powerful because he was the person in South Carolina that pushed Joe Biden into such a big victory in the South Carolina primary. So James Clyburn is a very powerful member of Congress. The whip who's outranks Clyburn is Steny Hoyer of Maryland, but Steny Hoyer of Maryland has some issues with um, Pelosi going back to their time together when they were in their early 20s and worked for the same senator from Maryland. But Steny Hoyer is the whip, and they work under um, Pelosi. I was going to say, that was the one before was Steny Hoyer, and then James, well, James again. So they've kind of gone back and forth over the last 20 well, years, really? Uh, no, Clyburn has always been third to Hoyer. Hoyer has always been second um, in that. Do they call Clyburn assistant speaker or something? Well, they have Nancy Pelosi in 2001 to 2003 was the whip. And then Steny was 2003 through two, for two terms. Yeah. Then James Clyburn for two terms. Then Steny for eight terms. No, sorry, four terms, eight uh, years. All right. And then, then James Clyburn's back for the last two. This is how it works. <laughs> <laughs> this is how it works. When the Democrats are in the majority, they have the speaker, the majority leader, and the whip. When they're in the minority, they have the speaker and the majority leader. So when they have the whip, Clyburn becomes the whip and Hoyer becomes the majority leader. When they're in the minority, Hoyer drops down to the whip, Pelosi drops down to minority leader, and Clyburn drops out, but he's still third. Gotcha. Okay. So, and if I go on the Republican, Steve Scalise? Steve Scalise of Louisiana. Scalise? He was the Republican who got shot at the ball field in 2017. Oh, He's yeah. second right. in the Republican Party Yep. in the House of Representatives. Behind Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell is in the Senate. So, okay. So who's who's the who's head of the, the House in the Republican? Kevin McCarthy. Okay, Kevin okay. McCarthy, if the Republicans win the majority in uh, this month, next week, he'll become the next Speaker of the House. Because three things have to happen. One, the Republicans have to win a majority. Two, the Republican conference has to vote for him. And three, he has to get a majority of the vote when that full House meets in January. Which, if they win the majority... So basically, the three choices, if they do one, typically two and three follow suit? Or... Yeah. Well, it could work different ways. So if you go back to 1994, the Republicans were the minority. Gingrich was the minority leader. Excuse me. Gingrich was the minority whip, and Bob Michael was the minority leader. 
Gingrich told Michael, I'm going to run against you for, major for a minority leader if you don't retire. So Michael retired before the election. The Republicans won a majority in 94, like we said, the first time that Republicans won a majority of the seats in the South. And in January of 95, Gingrich moved from minority whip to Speaker of the House. He, okay. And so Kevin McCarthy now is minority leader and minority whip is Scalise. And if the Republicans win, then Kevin McCarthy could become Speaker of the House if Trump doesn't block it. And Scalise could become majority leader and Elise Stefanik could move up from conference chair to whip. So she's that close to that position. She's that close to that position. Does she have to get voted on for that to happen? She has to get voted on through the conference of Republicans. Does it sound like that would be something that she would do? That looks or like could, it's could, gonna, I guess, win? That looks like it's going to happen. Okay. Because she's part of the team that, just like Gingrich moved up when the Republicans took a majority, or just like um, Pelosi and Hoyer and Clyburn move up, the Republicans would move up. So the top three Republicans would then be the speaker, majority leader, and majority whip, as gotcha. opposed to being the minority leader, minority whip, and conference chair. Okay, so if, if everybody followed that, um, there's there's one guy, Leslie, I don't want to spend too much time on it. Cause That's Leslie up Aarons of Illinois. Leslie Aarons, he was there forever. He was a career whip. I was going to say he's like 30-something, Yeah, what years, years was he there? Oh, boy. Um, 1943. Yeah. So it was Harry Engelbright for yes. one, two, three, four, five, six. So he was 12 years. Leslie Aaron's 1943 through 1975. Yeah. And then um, who took him? From Illinois. And then it was uh, Robert Michael. Yeah. M Michelle Michael. Yeah. Bob Michael from Peoria, Illinois. Yep. So Leslie Aaron's, he was the whip. But he didn't desire to move up in the leadership. He was happy as whip. So if you're the Republican whip and you want to become the leader, sometimes you have to face off in a uh, battle. But he was happy. And so he never tried to become the majority leader. And who was the one you said became the next whip? Bob Michael. So Michael yeah. then, he became the minority leader. But the Republicans felt when they became more strident in the 1990s, that he was too much of a Me Too Republican, taking crumbs from the Democrats rather than working to get a, de a Republican majority in the House. So that's when Gingrich said, I'm going to challenge you if you don't get out of the way. And he retired. Yeah, this is... Who's next? Uh, no, this, this, this is impressive. Um, then it goes Chester Lott. That's Trent Lott of Biloxi, Mississippi. Yep. So Lott was... a. He worked for an old Democratic uh, m member of the House from um, from Mississippi, who um, John Colmer. Maybe it's Colmer wasn't his first name because I know other Colmers, but uh, Colmer. But then Lot changed his party from Democrats to Republican, and he moved up and became the the Republican whip in the House, and then he moved to the Senate. And he took a Senate seat and became Republican leader in the Senate. But then he got in trouble 
and had to withdraw from that position. After serving in the Senate, he became a big-time lobbyist in Washington, D.C. Yeah, the whip. I mean, it's just— the, Who else uh, do they have there, the House whip? The whip, uh, what were we on? Was that Republican or Democrat? That was Republican Repu- side, yeah. right? Um, then it goes Richard Cheney for two years. Cheney Rich- of Wyoming. So Cheney, he came to Washington as a congressional fellow and then worked in the Ford White House. And then he ran from Wyoming. And he was on a fast track to become a leader. But he left to go into the Bush uh, White House as Secretary of Defense. And then the, the last one, I mean, this is, there's been a few since, but the only one I've recognized, well, Kevin McCarthy, that's the one that's currently in line for the Speaker of the House. Right. Um, so he was there two years before Scalise, but um, Newt Gingrich was 89 to 95. So he was that's out of Georgia. That's right. He was um, second to Michael probably those years. So he had three, three terms. Um, yeah. And, well, going back to some of our races here, um, so we talked about Chuck Schumer. We had um, state Supreme Court justices, which I didn't realize was a 14-year term. Fourth Judicial District, um, which is the fourth judicial district. That is just the, our more our area. That's a that covers a big swath of territory in our area. Kind of like Albany up ballpark. Um, they list the counties in there, and um, those counties are. You know, the top court in New York State is called the Court of Appeals. And the Court of Appeals is through just like the U.S. Supreme Court. It needs a president, a, a presidential nomination and a Senate approval for Supreme Court. And then for the um, State Court of Appeals, it needs a governor's nomination and then approval by the Senate. But many judgeships under that are up for election and that they come up quite frequently yeah i was gonna say we have three that are running out of quite a bit the only one that's highlighted here is robert Mueller, um, who's running against comferman um there's a few other ones i'm not sure because they're not lining up with what I'm, i'm looking at here but um so the next one down which obviously is one of the more Publicized ones is Matt uh, Costelli and Elise Stefanik for Congressional District, the 21st District. Um, what's your thoughts? We have basically four more that I want to go through. So what's your thoughts on that one? Well, that's a, a very interesting race. The, the, the Northern Tier Congressional um, District, when I came up here, this was a rock-ribbed Republican district. I've researched this district, and it's changed, but I keep the focus Clinton County. And I went back all the way to 1902, but I could have gone back further. And we always had Republicans in this House seat from 1902 um, to the present. Back then, it was a smaller district. And then it was a district that went all the way to Rensselaer County, as it does now, starting in uh, 2023. But we had Republicans. But then something happened in 2009, and Bill Owens won the election in what was then New York 23, but covered Clinton County. The Democrats won the seat for the first time since... um, 
at least 1902. And that was when John Hughes was elected to... Yes, you, that was a... Or appointed to something with John Obama? McHugh. McHugh, yeah. Yes. So what happened there was, in 1968, Plattsburgh got thrown into the same congressional district as Watertown. And over that time, we had three congressmen who came from the Watertown metropolitan region. And those three were Republicans who routinely got reelected. President Obama did very well up in this region. And the Democrats picked John McHugh to become Secretary of the Navy. And so he left this seat open. At that time, Obama was very popular in northern New York. And that became a competitive race. And Bill Owens won as the Democrat for a one-year remainder of the term in November of 2009. And then he ran in 2010 and 2012 and won. So he served for five years. Elise Stefanik decided to challenge Bill Owens for the seat. And then after she announced her challenge to the seat, Bill Owens announced that he was retiring from the seat. People oftentimes get that um, confused. They think she came in after he retired. But he, but he had announced his retirement after she had said that she's going to run for the seat. And then she was elected in 2014 and has been elected ever since. And this has once again become a solid Republican district. So we've always been a Republican district except for the five years of Bill Owens. And that was over the course of three elections? Over the course of three elections. One was a one-year or, special election for Owens in 09, and then yes. Owens won in 2010 and 2012. Um, yes, I, I remember. I mean, again, that was, that was right around the time I was able to vote. So that's kind of like how I remember. Those were a little bit more. I was in college at the time, and I could remember those um, those happening. But um, so in, in this race, where do you think, where do you feel that this is going, Matt or Elise? Well, when I look at a race, I look at three factors. One is incumbent. Incumbents win 90% or more of the time. So Elise Stefanik is the incumbent. Then I look at political party. And this district is a Republican district. In terms of party enrollment, it favors the Republicans over the Democrats. In terms of Trump vote in the district, it favors Trump over Biden. And in the last election, Stefanik received 58.8% of the vote. Statistically, that means it's very unlikely that she would lose the election. And the third thing I look at is the national direction. Is this a year that's good for the Democrats or is it good for the Republicans? And this is a year that looks good for the Republicans. So on all three counts, you have to think that Elise Stefanik is favored to win. Of course, using the uncertainty principle, you have to say there's some uncertainty in the outcome, but she should be able to win the election. Okay. And then 
State Senator, we have Gene Lapper and Dan Stack. Dan Stack, obviously the uh, incumbent. Um, how do you think that one's going to shake out? One thing that strikes me is how quickly someone becomes an incumbent. In other words, in um, 2018, this was an open district as the incumbent state senator retired. And we had a face-off between the Republican and the Democrat, and Dan Steck, the Republican, won. And now, all of a sudden, he's almost like an entrenched incumbent. What advantages does he have? Well, this is a Republican district in terms of enrollment, slightly, but he comes from Queensbury, as does his opponent, um, Gene Lapper. Secondly, he's the incumbent, and it's an incumbent... It's a good year for the incumbent's party, the Republican. So he has the factors going in his advantage. Also, I saw he's getting some endorsements by Democratic teacher unions, which suggests to me that they might see him as more of an entrenched incumbent. So I, so I would say that he has the decided advantage. In the assembly race, it's the 115th. This is a district that really had a realignment, to use that term. Traditionally, we would have um, Republican members of the assembly in Clinton County. But when the assemblywoman retired, Billy Jones captured the district as a Democrat. Here again, you have a Democratic lead in enrollment and you have a Democratic incumbent. However, it's a Republican year. So Billy Jones has a decided advantage, but the outcome remains uncertain, as it does in all three of the races, where you have um, two parties running with strong candidates. I would add, going back to the governor's race, and talking about the governor's race, we didn't talk enough about the impact of Biden on the election. When New York changed its governor setup in 1938 to make it only at midterm for governor, they wanted to insulate the governor's race from the presidential race. But what has happened is that because of the midterm woes faced by presidents, the governor's race has actually come to reflect the the midterm woes faced by presidents. So as Biden has gone down in approval across the country, he has dragged with him members of his party in the House, but also members of other executives in his party. And so that's a problem for New York State Democrats also is the Biden approval um, numbers. So you think that, I mean, again, based on that, you would think that Steck would pull ahead of Lapper. And then do you think, even though Billy being um, a Democrat and then Stephen uh, Chilton running against him, do you think that Billy separated himself enough possibly from people not wanting to vote for a Democrat? Jones has been very out there in the district, and he's worked 
very tirelessly to build himself up what they call a personal vote in the district. Mm-hmm. However, he's a short-term incumbent, and the district, while it has a Democratic lead, there's a lot of Republicans in the district, and it's historically been a Republican district. So he's running all out. He's uncertain of victory. I'm not going to say he's going to win and then go back and wake up the next day and not lose any sleep whether he lost his job or not. But it's his job on the line. So he's working all out. He has to run like he's going to lose. The same with Steck, because while they're favored in their races, it's not automatic. So all incumbents who want to stay a while have to run like their job is on the line and like the outcome is uncertain. And so whatever I say or prognosticators say does not lead the incumbent to rest because the incumbent is fighting for their career. So Jones is running as hard as he can, I'm sure, and so is Dan Steck. So the outcome as incumbents is favorable, but you never know until election day. I like it. I, li- I like the full circle there. Um, I-, I think uh, I agree with it. I mean, I-, I don't know Dan Steck as well on the senator side. Um, I know he's around and I've met him before, but I, I don't know him personally. Billy obviously spends more time here and, um, you know, I think that definitely has that, uh, that community aspect. So, well, the Senate district is a bigger district. So traditionally this Senate district has run from Queensbury up through Clinton County and through Franklin County and maybe even a few towns in um, St. Lawrence County, if it still goes there. It may not. Um, so what that means is that a state senator has a lot more distance to cover, and the state senator covers two media markets, really the Glens Falls area and the North Country, Plattsburgh area. And so we've switched back and forth. For many years, Senator Stafford represented this district, and he was from Plattsburgh. He had offices that you can see right out this window, mm-hmm. right across the way. And you saw a lot of him. You could see him at the Clinton County Airport when you got off and on the plane sometimes. But then when we had the next um, senator, she was from Queensbury. And she was more visible in Queensbury. And then her anointed successor was Dan Steck, and he's also from um, Queensbury. So Betty Little, who represented this district for a lot, you would see her in Plattsburgh. I used to see her at um, labor breakfasts where she would talk, and she would certainly talk at the Chamber of Commerce breakfasts. But Steck... When he got ready to run for the Senate, he also was up here, even though his assembly district didn't cover this area, because he was laying the foundation for running for the state Senate from this area. So you don't know him as well, but you will in succeeding years, because he's up here more and more as this becomes part of his um, 
district. He was almost going to lose this as part of his district in one of the plans, but they kept this in his district. But his home base is Queensbury. Um, who's the other guy? Sampson or Simpson? Simpson. Matt Simpson. But he is is he part of our district or no? Not where we're sitting now. Okay. Um, so we have, we're in the 115th Assembly District, which has Billy Jones, and we're in the State Senate District 45, which has Daniel Steck, and we're in Congressional District 21, which has Elise Stefanik. That's all. Gotcha. Okay. Um, and then the last one, um, which would be for Clinton County, but it's the sheriff uh, race, which as of right now, Dave Favreau is the only one on the ballot, but... I mean, I think, um, you know, he's the incumbent has been there. And then you have um, Decker and Warwick are the two that are, are on the, are campaigning as write-in. So how does, I guess, your thoughts on that race and how does a write-in work? A write-in works when a person is not on the ballot, they write in the name. And every half century or so, a person can win a con- a U.S. Senate race as a write-in candidate. I have two I'm thinking of now, but I don't want to um, put put them out there in case um, that's not the case, but it is (laughs) the case. And um, a write-in candidate is not on the ballot, but people can write their name in. It makes it very difficult to get elected. But a write-in is a person who is not nominated by a political party. Or, or who has not filed for their own party line. So, but if somebody wanted to, in this case, we have two people that are running, they have signs out there, they've got dropping off door flyers and they have all these things going on. Do they, can anybody decide they want to campaign as a write-in? Yes. Like if you wanted to decide, hey, you know, vote for uh, Harvey Chance as a, as a write-in for governor, could you do so? Yes, because you're running on your own. Now let's take Matt Costelli. Matt Costelli is running on the moderate party line. What he did was he got petitions signed to create a new party for this district and put it on the line. So he's running on his own party. That's different than a write-in because what that means is he'll be on three lines. It'll be Matt Costelli. I guess he'll be on two lines. It'll be Matt Costelli, Democrat and moderate. And it'll be Elise Stefanik on um, Republican conservative. So you don't have to write their names. You just have to circle their names in. But if you're a write-in, a person has to write your name. So yeah, so th- th- that's the actual sheet. So like Billy Jones is, th- what is it? The, uh, um, I you described the sheet for me, but uh, something with, it's a, it's fun. Oh, Broadband Now is also a party. Let so, me see that. So if somebody for Who? Billy, if somebody was, so let's let's take you said Elise. So she's on Republican and she's on conservative. How does she get on both? Because they're two totally separate uh, organizations, right? That's right, and. Um, so how it works is there are political parties in New York State, and these parties have to qualify for the ballot. And from 1936 to um, now, you qualified from the ballot 
if you got 50,000 or more votes in the last governor's election. But Andrew Cuomo passed legislation in the state legislature to say you need 130,000 or 2% of the vote, whichever is more. And that peered down in presidential elections and governor's elections. And that peered down the number of parties that appeared. And so now there's only four parties, the Republicans, the conservatives, the Democrats, and the working families. So then the, the Republican candidate, if they're so inclined, they take on the conservative party line. And the Democratic candidate, if they're so inclined, they take on the working family's line. But if you're not inclined to view things that way, then you can run on your own as a Democrat. So in this case, our Democratic congressional candidate, Costelli, he didn't want to run, and they may not have wanted to run him as a working family's candidate. So what he did was he filed enough petitions to get his new party on the ballot, the moderate party. And so he's running on two. But the people who are running as write-ins, they did not file to create their own party. So they're asking people to pencil in or write in their name. Which is the sheriff in this case. Well, at least locally, we have it as the sheriff. Um, but it would make sense. I mean, I'm looking at the ballot now. If anybody's ever voted, you typically have all the names listed. You have a little circle. You fill it in. In this case, in which, for most people, if they're not paying attention to what's going on, just go through and start circling stuff and don't think, hey, i got to actually physically write to the bottom someone's name. And, and you can clearly see at the bottom there is write-ins, but... I would say most people reading this at a quick glance, their eyes focus on the top of the page, go left to right, and they're done. Well, how it would work with a write-in is that um, what you would have to do is get someone who really wants to support you. Show them your name and have them remember your name. You could give them a little index card and they could bring it with them and write your name or impress upon them where to write your name. But that takes a lot of extra work and you're not getting any free votes. So give me your copy of the ballot. So let's say I go in the ballot and I'm gonna vote. I see the Democrats have row A. They have row A because they got the most votes on their line for president in 2020. So they get row A. The Republicans got the second number of votes, so they get row B. The conservatives got the third number of votes, so they get row C. The working families got the fourth number of votes, so they get row D. Now, depending on the votes that are cast for governor in this election, the rows can change for the next two years. And so the party that gets the most votes next week for governor gets row A, second row B, third row C, third row D. But the conservatives and working families, in order to keep their ballot position, have to get at least 130,000 votes or 2% of the vote, whichever is more, or else they lose their row. So I'm going in, I'm voting Democrat because I'm a, a strong supporter of Thomas DiNapoli. So I vote for DiNapoli but also on his line is Hochul. 
So I vote Hochul, DiNapoli, James, Schumer, and I go right down the line. Each person, the three who are running for judge, I don't know them, but they're Democrats. So I'm voting the line right across. So if so what you see is if Zeldin is running well in a district, that helps the judicial candidates who are running as as Republicans because they're just running. They went there to vote for Zeldin. And so while they're there, they vote the whole line straight across. Well, and that's what I think most people, I would think would be the default if they're not really in tune with anything or don't know the candidates, just go straight across. Well, the would, default could be, I vote for the people I know and leave the others out. So someone could oh, come in, yep. I vote for, I'm going to vote for Hochul, then I'm going out. I don't know the others. Or I vote for Hochul, DiNapoli, I've heard of James, Schumer, I've seen. These others, I don't know, I'm out of here. That's called voter fatigue or drop-off. So the voter gets fatigued after a while because there's too many to vote for. And so turnout on lower races is less than turnout at higher races. So I examine that sometimes to see which race was more exciting to um, <laughs> voters. So top of the ticket, you want someone who's going to excite. So as Hochul is losing traction, so to speak, other Democrats down ballot are a little worried that they're going to lose some. Because she, she's the big dog in the race at this point. Yeah. Or most known. Yeah. And Schumer, because his race is not as competitive, he's probably not whipping people out to vote as much as if his neck was on the line. So, so then let's say I'm a... Um, a Democrat, and I'm not really happy with Hochul, but I would never vote Republican. So then I say, all right, I'll vote, I'll vote for Zeldin, but maybe on the conservative line, but I can never vote Republican. So let's say you have someone who's on the far left, and they say, well, I'll vote for Hochul, but not as a Democrat. I'll vote for her as a working family. So they spread their net in that... Um, way. And so then LaRouche and moderate and broadband, they did not have automatic access. They had to get petitions signed to get on the ballot. So that's how that uh, works. Well, Harvey, I got, I got a, this, um, I got, well, one, we got to wrap it up, but two, um, I always get excited when you come on before the election, and I hear you talk about it because, again, and, and people don't see this, but I, I, uh, I'll i get a picture we'll put on social media but of, of typically the guests, but you have, you brought your research. Like, you have, I mean, you have papers, you have notebooks, you have, um, you got quite a bit of information and graphs, and, and like I said, you were flipping through some notes and stuff, so I mean... But I will say, majority of the number or the facts that you rattled off, you weren't looking at your notes. No. So no. I feel a lot of this is mine. I feel like this is just like backup if you if you if you uh, didn't know all this by memory. So well, it's pretty impressive. Well, um, I didn't know what you would ask, so I ha <laughs> I, I covered um, U.S. Senate races across the country and a turnout. I did a lot on and. Um, in other words, what Senate seats would have to fall for the uh, 
Republicans to win the majority and how does turnout compare in midterm and uh, presidential races. So I didn't know what you would um, ask. I, I didn't know we would be reviewing presidential elections. So most of we, it was, we, was hey, out of left field. We, we, I don't, I don't, like I told you, I don't know where any of this goes. I, 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 uh, I had some stuff down I wanted to ask. I wanted to cover the local stuff. Um, la- last thing, because I have basically one minute. Give me three Senate races that you're most watching. Well, the, the th- if, if I was like, Harvey, you're going to sit on the couch, you're going to watch this on election night, which three are you the most excited for to hear the results? Well, I think there's two that have really grabbed national attention, my attention. It's the Pennsylvania race where um, the— Repu- Dr. Oz. Yeah, the Republican yeah. incumbent has retired, and Do- Dr. Oz is running against John Fetterman. The Democrat. So if Pat Toomey had not left, the Democrats would not have a real chance at getting that Pennsylvania Senate seat. And then the other one, which you can't help but uh, look at, is Georgia, where there's um, Herschel Walker and Warnock. Warnock was the candidate, one of the candidates who got elected in January of uh, 2021. And he's defending his seat against um, Herschel Walker, who's running as the Republican. And so those are the races. The other races across the country are more just uh, names. But I think on the East Coast, those are the two that have been in the um, public eye. The the only one I recognize, too, was Blake Masters is running in Arizona. And I was like, I know that name. And I, I looked it up, and I actually read a book by him earlier this year. He was a part of a, a tech startup with a, well, part of a Peter Thiel, who was a big you know, Silicon Valley investor. And that's, it ties in with business books that I've read. And, and uh, I was like, I've seen that name before, and it happened to be the same guy. So he's a, he's a fairly young guy, though. And who is the incumbent Democrat that he's running against? Uh, ooh, you would ask that. Um, I don't have it right in front of me anymore. Let's is that see. that should be Mark Kelly? Um, yes, yes, I, you he, are. You're he, right. Yep. He has an interesting um, career path because he was an astronaut. And he was went into outer space, but he was the husband of the Arizona congresswoman who got uh, shot. Oh yeah, some years ago, yeah, and then he yep. fitted into her congressional career and has um, got into politics um, through that um, way. So for those people out west, they're looking at Nevada and Arizona. Um, But on the East Coast, um, Pennsylvania is very interesting where Dr. Oz has the television personality but roots in New Jersey and he's running as the Republican. And John Fetterman He's a statewide candidate in Pennsylvania, but he suffered a stroke. And so they're criticizing his ability to completely do the job. And in um, Georgia, Raphael Warnock was elected in 2021. And Herschel Walker, the football star from University of Georgia, grew up there, is challenging um, for that Senate seat as a Republican. And so what the Republicans have to do to win is keep their seats, including Pennsylvania, and then um, win one more. 
either Georgia or Nevada or one other. So, well, everybody, election is today's Tuesday, a week from today, and which I believe is the latest the election can be held, correct? The election is pegged at the Tuesday following the first Monday of November. So the earliest it could be is November 2nd, and the latest is November 8th. So it falls out that this year at November 8th. On the, on the latest. I, I don't know how I knew that, but that I know that and Easter have weird floating dates after certain dates. So, um, But Harvey, I appreciate you coming on. I always I love listening to you talk. I, I'm, not a, I'm not really into politics in the sense of, I don't like getting into politics with people, but I do like the science behind politics. And I find it's fascinating and there's a lot of uh, behavior and human behavior involved and all that good stuff. So, um, but yeah, we'll wrap it up there. Thank you very much. You know, you know way more than I'll ever know. You, 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 well, you, I, you're a very young, ambitious guy and you're, uh, you have a great business here and you're dabbling in my field but i certainly never dabbled in your field that's all right i i could i could talk you off on that but i'll save you is the trouble is english your first language it, it is okay so we're even there okay <laughs> i was going to say you're questioning my english cuz then you're making me feel no, a lot no, you're no. making me feel that it might have like a no, good friend no i'm French. just wanting to know how uh universally uh educated you are well i took 8 years of french and i don't know much more than probably the road signs in canada same so. thing happened to me so there we go um all right that's episode 209 of the galen trombley show Uh, We're out. Thank you for listening to the Galen Trombley Show. Be sure to subscribe, review, and share the episode. You can follow me on all social platforms at Galen Trombley. Thanks for listening.